Versailles, The Immortal, Episode 1, 1623-1721. It's fabulous, isn't it? The portraits of the kings, the views of the palace and the gardens, these exquisitely detailed objects. Eleven rooms to cover a whole history. That's all it took. You know, I'm a bit jealous that you're getting to explore this gallery of the history of the palace. Because you're on the brink of an extraordinary adventure. One that has lasted for 400 years. As for me, I've lived it all. Every last thrill and spill. And I'll never, ever leave Versailles, my home. But I digress. I invited myself into your noble ears without introducing myself. No, I'm not Louis XIV, nor Le Vau, Le Nôtre, or Bontemps. My name is Pierre Duchamp, and I'm a gamekeeper. Not as fancy as those other guys, I admit. But stay with me and you'll soon see I'm not just anyone. To start with... I'm dead, which, in itself, is not all that interesting. A bit more intriguing is the fact that, since the day of my demise, I have never left Versailles, never stopped passing through its walls and across its floors, or haunting its walkways and groves. Some believe I'm a phantom. Others say I'm a spirit, a specter, a ghost. Tomato, tomato. The important thing is, I'm real. After all, here I am talking to you. And you can hear me. Over 400 years, I've seen and heard it all. Would you like me to share my memories? Well, a chosen few, in any case. Because, unlike me, you don't have the whole of eternity. <laughs> right. Close your eyes. You'll be able to see better that way. Right here is where it all began. Exactly four centuries ago. In the very spot where you're standing now, with me in your ears. Now, imagine a small hill with a windmill on one side and a farm on the other. Down in the valley, there are marshes and woods. Weird spot to build a palace, you might think. Well, yeah, but it was great for hunting. As for me, I knew those marshes like the back of my hand. So you can imagine my excitement when I heard that our ruler, Louis XIII, had decided to build a hunting lodge right here on the hill with the windmill near Versailles. It was a great location given the proximity of the Marley and Noisy forests and his residence in Saint-Germain-en-Laye just over the way. My dad used to tell me stories about hunts on this land during King Henry's time. It seems he used to take his son, the future Louis XIII, 
out here from when the lad was just six years old. Childhood memories stick with you forever, whether you're a king or a peasant. Anyway, in the spring of 1624, the hill became a hive of activity. The construction of the palace was proceeding apace, as were preparations for the hunting, because the king wanted to be in there before the summer. One morning, I fancied a snoop around the site. But that turned out to be not the best idea. Hey, Duchamp! Finally decided to leave your dogs in your trees, huh? Not for long, Petit Jean. I wanted to know what you were up to. It's not every day you get to see a palace being built. It's a big deal. It certainly is. Just doesn't happen overnight. I like these red bricks. Yeah, they're simple, but they do the trick. Where will the king sleep? On the first floor. From there to there. Quite a small area for a king. <laughs> it would be too big for me. And what about the horses? Where will they be kept? I see what you're at. Come on, follow me, but take care. Structure's not finished yet. How are the wild boar looking this year? I'll know more in a few weeks. For now, we're clearing the walkways. Watch out for the pulley! Faced with a 12-meter-long roof ridge tile, I didn't stand a chance. But by some miracle, I stood back up, practically unscathed, just minus the use of my body. This does have some advantages, though, like being able to pass through walls and travel through time. Of course, I'd have loved to have been there in the flesh to accompany the king and his companions on one of their first fox hunts on June 28, 1624, as a consolation I snuck between two stones and watched him sleep for the first time in his new palace. From ten and three quarters until five past midnight, in the bed he had brought all the way from Paris. Now, don't pay too much attention to the naysayers who called it the little house of cards, barely fit for a second-rate noble. It did have some class, that first residence. A little rectangle with two wings closed off by a wall, with ditches all around for protection. It was a bit too breezy, mind you. Without wishing to boast, it was clear to me from the start that there was a special bond between the King and Versailles, and that this humble hunting lodge was destined for greatness. It's generally assumed that we shape the places we live in, but I reckon it's the other way around, and that they shape us. Take Louis XIII, for instance. This is where he came into his own and found the courage to stand up to his mother that he lacked in Paris. It was a Sunday in autumn, the 11th of November, 1630, and I was watching the leaves fall when the king's carriage rolled into the courtyard. He hadn't been expected at Versailles. Long live the king! But I heard that that very same morning, Marie de Médicis had convinced him to get rid of Cardinal Richelieu. Ah, mothers, when they have a bee in their bonnet, eh? Shortly after, the cardinal himself arrived. 
Naturally, I slipped under a door to eavesdrop on his conversation with the king. After what felt like an eternity, the king declared, I am more committed to my country than to my mother, and embraced his minister. It's the first time I witnessed a political event. It would have given me goosebumps if I still had skin. Who knows what would have happened if Louis XIII had not retreated here, having temporarily sided with the Queen. If he had stayed in Paris, with its narrow streets, secret passageways, and listening ears everywhere, we'll never know. But one thing I do know is that from that day on, the King and his companions began to visit Versailles more regularly. He commissioned Le Roi, that's Philibert Le Roi the architect, not Le Roi as in the French for the King, you know what I mean, to make the first improvements to the palace. And they certainly weren't the last, let me tell you. Listen, can you hear those voices? That's the new Versailles soundtrack. The hubbub created by the young Louis XIV and his sizable entourage of young ladies. When Louis XIII died in 1643, I thought I'd be bored. But the estate didn't stay quiet for long. At the age of just 13, the young king arrived here. Like his father, he came for the hunting, but also to spend hours on horseback in the woods. But it wasn't just that. At the Louvre, he preferred Saint-Germain. And at Saint-Germain, what would he prefer? If you want my opinion, Versailles quickly worked its magic. The hunting lodge became a country retreat, and the ladies arrived at the palace. The queen, the regent, Madame, Mademoiselle, Lavalière, and Louis' other favorites, all a far cry from his father's hunting pals, that's for sure. Rumor had it, that the feminine touch had also seeped into the décor. Me, I don't mind a bit of filigree or crystal. Hey, Pierre, are, are you talking to yourself? I'm talking to faraway friends. You wouldn't understand, Madeline. Do you think I'm dumb? No, not at all, my dear Madeline. But I'm telling them about something that happened before you arrived at the palace. Oh, stop showing off, Pierre. I've seen some things in my time, too, you know. The things I could tell you. I do apologize for this interruption. Madeleine was a nanny in the service of Queen Maria Theresa and Louise de la Vallière. Do you remember the first night you spent here? Of course. It was in 1665. The king was still just a young lad, but he'd managed to produce quite a few offspring, nevertheless. There was no shortage of little princes and princesses to nurse. But there weren't enough bedrooms. The royal family was spending more and more time here, but there wasn't that much room. No. The palace was still more or less the hunting lodge of Louis XIII's time. His successor, Louis XIV, had great plans to extend it, but he could never make up his mind. Eventually, he started with the gardens. Ah, oh, the gardens. Come with me into this room of the gallery of the history of the palace, which is all about the gardens. Do you see that quirky lead dolphin? That used to be in the labyrinth grove, one of the wonders of the gardens back in the day. Because he couldn't accommodate everyone indoors, 
The king began treating them to outdoor strolls, games, and entertainments. Here, where just a few decades earlier, there was nothing but marshes. And then, in subsequent years, a park for hunting. Le Nôtre worked his magic. The king began by bringing the court on side, and he did so with beautifully trimmed yew trees, cypress mazes, and fountains in the form of Greek gods. Beyond these walls, there may have been wars, uprisings, and famines. But here in Versailles, it was party time. Because during those years, partying was what it was all about at Versailles. What a crowd! And hey, don't stray too far, or it might swallow you up. Let's follow the stream of guests invited to the great royal entertainment of July 18, 1668, as it winds a course full of surprises through the gardens. The event took months of preparation. Fountains and pavilions were especially constructed for it, and the chefs put on a movable feast. Literally. No expense or extravagance were spared to celebrate the king's victory over the Spaniards. There was even a theater set up, draped in blue, and lit up by 32 crystal chandeliers for Monsieur Moliere's performing troupe. And now to the festivities. How do you manage to be still so energetic after a performance? Well, youth is not just a matter of age, my dear Armand. Let's talk about that another time when you're playing a major role, dear Catherine, if you ever do. The feast awaits, ladies, and it won't hang around for long. We've already messed up by stopping for a nibble in the Stargrove. Mademoiselle de Brie just wants to dance. Monsieur Lagrange just wants to eat. What a motley crew the king's troop at the royal palace are. Well, we did what we came here to do. Georges Dandin went down well, even with the king. So let's enjoy the rest of the evening. This great entertainment is even more magical than the party of the delights of the Enchanted Island, held four years ago. You're right. It's just a pity that the beautiful theater built by Monsieur Vigarani will only be used once. Well, I actually think it's great. It's like an homage to the fleeting lightness of summer, of our art, and of life itself. Moliere is going to spend the evening working with Monsieur Lully, so come with us. After the ball, there are going to be fireworks. Oh, well, if there are fireworks... (laughs) (laughs) Off we go. It's good not having to sleep anymore. It means I can enjoy the nighttime silence. And silence here, during Louis XIV's time, was as rare as it was precious. Let's go back to the gallery of the history of the palace. This first room is superb, isn't it? You get what it's about straight away. Take a look at the plan of the palace from 1668 and at the reconstructions of the works on the screen opposite it. Amazing, aren't they? Pierre! Pierre! What? What's wrong? Have you told them about us? The workers on the site? Can I not be left in peace to tell my own story? 
If all the ghosts at Versailles want in on the action, I'll never get to the end of it. We're the ones who built the Sun King's palace. And some of us even lost our lives in the process. Okay, but no more interruptions. I was just about to discuss the works. How do I even begin to describe how crazy things were at Versailles from 1660 to around 1689? Just imagine it as a permanent building site. When I think about this transformation, I recall the emotion I felt in the face of such symmetry and beauty. Louis XIII's little palace, always at the heart, seemed to spread its wings as the king's need for space and spectacle increased. Le Vaux and, later, Ardouin Mansart may have been the architects of it all, but the mighty Louis had a say in everything. The new palace embraced the old one. New pavilions and wings were added over the years, as were grand and small stables. Inside, symbolic and actual likenesses of our king created by artists, adorned every wall and every ceiling. And all the while, life went on. The king, his thriving family, the ever-expanding circle of courtiers being offered lodgings. We had to accommodate them all in the middle of the ongoing renovations. What about us? You promised. All right, Germain. In 1685... About 36,000 of you workers were employed on the renovations at Versailles, either on the palace itself or the many townhouses that had to accommodate the members of the court. It was also said that dozens of you died every day, either from disease or exhaustion, after having toiled for 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week. But who thinks of us when they're admiring the Hall of Mirrors? Well, the people listening to us might do so now. My friends, yes, I consider you my friends now. I still have so much to share with you regarding those years when Versailles shone with a thousand lights. I would have loved to tell you all about the incredible boats that floated down the Grand Canal or the music that accompanied every aspect of life, in the bedrooms, the hallways, and the gardens, or the plots hatched to secure a place in the palace or be granted an even more luxurious apartment. We would have had a good laugh tracing the journey of a dish and sauce from sideboard to sideboard, from the king's stable to a warning room on another floor. And I so much wanted to introduce you to the finer points of etiquette. Alas, time is not on our side. Okay, just one more quick and quirky story. It was 1686. Versailles and its king were in their heyday, and the palace served as France's diplomatic headquarters. We received a delegation from the most far-flung place imaginable. The Kingdom of Siam. Don't be embarrassed. Back then, I didn't know where Siam was either. At the time, its capital was called Ayutthaya. Today, it's Bangkok. See, you do know it. After making their way by boat to Brest and traveling to Versailles from Paris in a royal carriage, escorted by the royal guard, the three ambassadors and their numerous attendants 
caused quite a stir in the castle courtyard. The king awaited them at the far end of the Hall of Mirrors. On his platform, a crowd of 1,500 people looked on with bated breath. They're here. Lower your eyes, Apolline, you never know. Did they get here via the ambassador's staircase? How else do you think they got here? But what's with this strange box and the parasols? <laughs> There's a letter from their king to ours inside the box. Fran or I would like our country's support against the Dutch, which would be good for our relations. Hey, I didn't know you were such an expert. If only you knew how much you don't know. <laughs> oh. Look how they prostrate themselves, flat on their bellies on the floor. Mm -hmm. I hope that doesn't give the king any ideas. I know some people who would kowtow like that to get an apartment in the palace. I love their hats. We could make them the fashion. Good God. They're looking right at the king and it doesn't seem to bother him. It seems he's giving them permission. Next time, I'm going to pretend to be a Siamese princess. <laughs> and I could say I'm your sister. Siamese sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, my most vivid memories are all from the time when Versailles was still just a project, a dream under construction, where perfection, though there were hints of it, was still just a goal on the horizon. When Versailles became the king's main residence in 1682, and everyone came to it to marvel at Louis' grandeur, down to the last detail, the hustle and bustle gradually subsided. A kind of boredom set in. And oh my, the wigs. Yes, there were billiards and dancing in the state apartments. But real moments of joy were rare. Everything was in order. And in my opinion, life prefers activity over order. It wouldn't be my choice to end this first episode on such a somber note. But it's not up to me. Remember, I'm just a humble gamekeeper. When the great king died in 1715... The king is dead! Our palace emptied like an unplugged sink. And the flow of inhabitants from the palace and the town made its way back to Paris. After all the marvelous secrets I had witnessed, there was now nothing to interest my eyes and ears apart from the visit of Peter the Great, who, I believe, found much to emulate here, and the Fountains Show, which took place every other Sunday. But what a journey in a century! From a little windmill to the magnificent splendor you can see today, almost exactly as it was then. A hundred years after the first stone of Louis XIII's hunting lodge was laid, and my own demise... Would Versailles finally reinvigorate itself and welcome a new king? To be continued. Versailles Immortal, a fictional tale by the Palace of Versailles, written by Emmanuel Suarez and produced by Moustique Studio. Thanks to the scientific advice of Mathieu Davina, Scientific Director of the Palace of Versailles Research Center, featuring the voices of Anaïs Parello, Bruce Sherfield, Véronique Belloc, David Coburn, Elise Anderson-Scoto, Yann Bean, and Tercelin Kirtley in the role of Pierre Duchamp. Discover 400 years of history 
as a gallery of the history of the Palace of Versailles, refurbished in 2023 thanks to the support of Région Île-de-France for the digital content. The Palace of Versailles podcast are available on all audio platforms in the Palace app and on en.chateauversailles.fr.